1: WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. Following is sponsored by Verse
0: by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded.
1: Paul says, An overseer then must be above reproach the husband of one wife. This is a very, very crucial phrase in Scripture. And it is necessary that we interpret it properly because if we don't, you know what can happen? We can either restrict qualified men from serving as pastors, as elders in the church, or we can open the door to unqualified men. This is a very, very important phrase. With the divorce rate in America being about 50% of all marriages, the church, in recent years at least, has been forced to deal with the issue of whether or not this phrase means that a man who has been divorced and remarried can serve as an elder. It's a very practical issue that in our times we really have to face. The church should have always faced us, but especially now we're forced to face this. Now, I really believe before we can interpret it properly, we must first understand and know what it's saying. First rule in Bible study is before you interpret it is know what it's saying. Now you may think that that's the same thing, but it's not. You must know what it's saying to know what it means by what it is saying.
0: Brief appetizer from Pastor Steve Kreloff. He is the pastor of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida, and the teacher on this verse by verse radio broadcast. If you're just joining us, we are studying in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the title of our series is God's Standards for Church Leadership. It is interesting to note that in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are 16 areas of a pastor's life that are listed the church is to look over those 16 areas of his life and ask the question, does this man meet these qualifications? However, on today's broadcast, Pastor Steve is going to show us that the best way to approach this list is to see that there is one overarching qualification, and that is that... Well, you know, I'll just stop there and leave the rest of it to Pastor Steve. And by the way, if you would like to be able to listen again to this program you can sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast at versebyverseradio.org. Now, i will give you that address again at the end of today's program. But here is Pastor Steve with today's Verse by Verse.
1: One of the things that impresses me about the early church, not everything, by the way, is to impress us about the early church. They didn't always do things right, but one of the things that they really did in my opinion, really well, was that they chose pastors from within the congregation. Have you ever noticed that the New Testament knows nothing about Bible college or seminary? Not that they're wrong, but it knows nothing about calling up and finding out what graduates are going to be available for the pastorate. The early church simply examined the men who were already there to see if they were qualified. It's a great advantage because you have the opportunity to carefully observe the lives of its men in order to make an accurate evaluation of their qualifications for the ministry before they ever become an elder or pastor or an overseer in the church. It is the sad, very sad story of many churches, in our country at least, to find that they choose a man to lead them because of either his preaching ability or charisma or administrative skills, but find out later that he... Was really lacking in spirituality. And maybe this is the reason why the average pastor stays about two years, maybe less than two years, and then moves on till they discover something about him and he discovers something about the congregation. Typically, the way candidating works is that a man comes in for a weekend, meets with the board, preaches once or twice, or maybe one more time, and that's their exposure to him. The church usually writes or phones others who know about him and there's letters of recommendations and so forth, but they really don't get to observe him on an ongoing basis until he's there. And then many times it's too late to avoid tragedy, spiritual tragedy in the life of the church. Now, God is concerned about avoiding this kind of thing, and so to avoid the heartache of the wrong men in church leadership, the Apostle Paul gave Timothy and Titus a list of things to look for in a man's life, to see if he's qualified to lead the church. In the sense of 1 Timothy, it's not just to avoid heartache, it's to deal with the heartache that's already there. I think that there's a twofold purpose in that, They had men who were in leadership who did not belong there. They were unqualified men, and so Paul is giving Timothy a list of the qualifications, so Timothy will have a handle and a standard by which to evaluate these men, as well as the church, is to read this letter or have it read to them, and they will evaluate. I think there's also the purpose of the fact that when they chose a man in the future, they would look back and say, now here's what Paul gave us, here are the guidelines. In Titus's situation, it is just to appoint new elders, and so these were qualifications that Titus was to look at in choosing the men. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are 16 areas of his life that are listed. The church is to look over these 16 areas of his life and say, does this man meet these qualifications? In Titus chapter 1, Paul adds a few more, so that the list is increased to 21. 21 areas of the man's life. But I really believe that the best way to approach this list is to see that there is one qualification, just one qualification, an overarching qualification, And that is that he is to be blameless. Notice in verse 2 of chapter 3, an overseer then must be above reproach, which means he's to be blameless. And all the other areas, all the other things listed in this list are areas of life that a man must be blameless in. Do you see that? That he must be blameless. And now Paul says, I'm going to list some areas or categories of his life that he's to be blameless in. And he does. And I think there are some specific areas that Paul gives for us. For one thing, what is his marital life like? How does he relate to his wife? That's found in verse 2. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. We'll deal with that tonight. But Paul goes on to say, what about his social life? How does he relate to people in society in general? How is he in his personal relationships with people? Well, he must be temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, Able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money. He goes on to another category. What about his family life? How does he relate to his family? Verse 4 and verse 5 say this. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And that phrase is very important, with all dignity. He keeps his children under control with all dignity. Does it right? But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Then Paul goes on to another area. What about the area of spiritual maturity? He goes on and says in verse 6, "...and not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil." You don't want a brand new babe in Christ. You want someone of spiritual maturity. There's another area. What about his business life? How well does he relate to those outside the church in his business dealings or in his neighborhood dealings? He says in verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. So you see, there are areas of his life that we're to examine and we're to say, is he blameless in these areas? And This evening, we want to see what his marital life must be like. And I remind you and point out to you that in verse 2, Paul says he must be. These are not suggestions. These are qualifications of necessity. It is necessary. It has to be. These are not flexible areas. These are not cultural areas. These are spiritual qualities. And he says he must be. These are not maybes, but must. Now, we can't lower the standards for leadership. Or else, you know what we do? We lower the standards for the church. Because if the elders are to be models for the church, that everyone is not only to look up to, but to aim at then if you lower those standards of the models, then you inevitably lower the standards of yourself. If we lower these standards, we are not isolating leadership. We are saying that the church will have lowered standards as well. And so this is very, very important. Now tonight, let's look at his marital life. And Paul expresses it in one phrase that has been very, very controversial over the years. And I hope you'll hear me out on it. Don't close your mind to it. We're going to go through a lot of these things. You're going to have to think tonight, and then we will arrive at a conclusion. Paul says, an overseer then must be, above reproach, the husband of one wife. This is a very, very crucial phrase in Scripture. And it is necessary that we interpret it properly, because if we don't, you know what can happen? We can either restrict qualified men from serving as pastors, as elders in the church, or we can open the door to unqualified men. This is a very, very important phrase. With the divorce rate in America being about 50% of all marriages, the church, in recent years at least, has been forced to deal with the issue of whether or not this phrase means that a man who has been divorced and remarried can serve as an elder. It's a very practical issue that in our times we really have to face. The church should have always faced this, but especially now we're forced to face this. I really believe before we can interpret it properly, we must first understand and know what it's saying. First rule in Bible study is before you interpret it is know what it's saying. Now you may think that that's the same thing, but it's not. You must know what it's saying to know what it means by what it is saying. Okay, the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, translate the phrase, the husband of one wife. That's how they translate it. That's how my version translates it. That's how the Authorized Version translates it. The New International Version translates it this way, the husband of but one wife. It's still basically the same translation. And that's good. But I want you to know what the Greek says. The Greek text has only three words. Only three words. One is one. That's the first word. One. Okay? And that is, by the way, the emphasis. One. One. The second word is woman, or it can be translated wife. This is the Greek word gune, and by the way, that's where we get the word gynecologist. This word gune refers to any adult female. It could be translated a woman, it could be translated a wife. Most of the time, the King James Version translates this word woman. So the first word is one. The second word is woman or wife. And the third word is man or husband. Once again, you have a Greek word that could be either man or husband. Most of the time, the King James Version translates it man rather than husband. A literal translation from Kenneth Wiest, who is a Greek professor at Moody for many years, has written some standard works on the Greek New Testament, says this. It would be a man of one woman. That is a literal translation. He's a man of one woman or a one woman man or a man of one wife, you could say, or a husband of one wife. In other words, an elder must be a one woman sort of a man. That's the thought here. The emphasis being on his character, not his marital status, and we'll see that in a few moments. He must be a one woman sort of a man. I want to read to you what we says about this expression. He's a Greek authority, he's with the Lord now, and for years and years he studied the Greek language and taught it, and this is what he has to say, the two nouns, meaning woman and man, are without the definite article, which construction emphasizes character or nature, it doesn't say the husband, the wife, just a, so he says that it emphasizes character, The entire context is one in which the character of the bishop is being discussed. Thus, one can translate a one-wife sort of a husband or a one-woman sort of a man. We speak of the Airedale as a one-man dog. We mean by that that it is his nature to become attached to only one man, his master. Since character is emphasized by the Greek construction, the bishop should be a man who loves only one woman as his wife. So the correct translation is a one-woman man. So we understand, we know that's what it says, a one-woman man, thought being a one-woman sort of a man. Now what does it mean by that? Now here's where we run into some problems and some differences of opinion. There are basically four views of what this means. And I want to go through each view. I want to show you what people are thinking, what some of you, I'm sure, are thinking. And then I want to show you what some problems with certain views are and what some problems with other views are and we'll hopefully arrive at what the Bible is really saying as we compare scripture with scripture. The first view is that an elder must be married. This is the view that says that you have to be married to be an elder. Single men cannot be pastors. Now there are people who hold to this. I have a friend who at one time in his life held to this and we would go round and around on it and I would say do you know where that teaching leads to? Do you realize where you're going with that? And he'd say, well, where am I going? And I'd say, this is where you're going with it. If he has to be married, then he has to have children. That's what verse 4 says. He must have children. Well, I said, I'm not sure about that. Well, I said, if he has to be married, according to your view, he has to have children. Then what if his children die? No longer be an elder? Well, I wouldn't go that far. Well, why wouldn't you go that far? That's where you inevitably have to end up. Now, those who hold to this say... That, well, Paul was really dealing with those in the church at Ephesus who were forbidding marriage. And we find in chapter 4, verse 3, there are men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods and so forth. And Paul also, in chapter 5, verse 14, urges young widows to get married. And so they say, well, the encouragement in this letter is to get married, so you can't have an elder who's not married. There are problems with this view, apart from what I just said about children and so forth. Let me give you the problems. And this is a real view that people hold to. I think it's absurd, quite frankly. I think it disqualifies men who are qualified. First of all, the phrase is emphasizing the one wife. It does not say he must be the husband of a wife. That's not the point here. One is the point, not a wife. The point is not that he has to be married. The point is, if he is married, assuming, because... You are dealing with mature men in the congregation and not kids that most people are married. The assumption being since he is married, make sure he is a one woman sort of a man. So my first problem with it is it's just not saying that he must be the husband of a wife. The emphasis being on one, not wife. Secondly, and this is a grave problem to face, it would eliminate Paul from being an elder. We've got real problems with Paul. Now, Paul maybe wasn't an elder at the church at Ephesus, but he sure was an elder at the church at Antioch. In fact, 1 Timothy 4.14, if you compare that with 2 Timothy 1.6, he speaks of the elders laying hands on Timothy, and he says that he laid his hands on Timothy, meaning that he was an elder. You're going to say that Paul taught that an elder has to be married, and we understand from 1 Corinthians seven, 7 and 8... That Paul was not married. We don't know what his background was. Speculation on it. But we know that Paul at this time was not married. Whether he was married before or not. We don't know. But let's take it at face value. He's not married. He's a single elder. You have to disqualify Paul. Paul's certainly not writing to disqualify himself. Third problem with this view. Is it would contradict other scriptures. And I think you should turn there to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 7 a lot tonight. 1 Corinthians 7. It would contradict other scriptures. God doesn't contradict himself. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Now concerning the things about which he wrote, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And he means here it's good for a man not to get in a marital situation in which he has sexual relations with a wife. That's the thought here. He's not talking about bumping somebody in a crowd. Okay, And that's the context here. So, first of all, Paul says it's good to not get married. Now, you can't isolate this from the rest of Scripture or the rest of this chapter. Paul will go on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that he has the gift of celibacy. He has the gift of singleness. And if you have that gift, then it's good to not get married. That's good. But notice, he goes on to say, but because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. In other words, not everybody has the gift of being celibate. And if you don't have this gift, don't try to claim that you do, and then you have problems with immorality. Get married rather than burn with lust. But he does go on to say, if you do have this gift, like I do, then it's good to remain single. He says in verse 32, "...but I want you to be free from concern. One who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord." How he may please the Lord. But the one who is married is concerned about the things of the world. How he may please his wife. And he says in verse 34, his interests are divided. That's why it's good not to get married if you have this gift. You don't have to take care of a family. It's good to take care of a family. But if you don't have to be distracted by that, you can serve so much better in terms of time and lack of distraction in terms of serving the Lord. Now, if it's good to be single, and Paul has said it is good to be single if you have this gift. It's good. It's proper. It's right. It's okay. To serve the Lord, then how can Paul require marriage to serve the Lord? It doesn't make sense. It's a contradiction. If it's good to be single to serve the Lord, would he be saying in 1 Timothy 3, well, now that you're single, you can not serve the Lord in this capacity? No, that doesn't make sense. There's a fourth reason, and I said this before, but I think it needs repeating. It is absurd to believe that if God doesn't give you children, you can't be an elder. See, that's where you have to go with this. You have to jump down to 1 Timothy 3 verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. It's absurd to think that if God doesn't give you children, you can't serve as an elder. That's where you have to go with this type of approach. As I said before, what if your children die? I mean, one day you're qualified to be an elder, they get in a car accident, and the next day you're not. doesn't make sense. Let me say this. These are spiritual qualifications, spiritual qualifications, and there is nothing spiritual about being married or being unmarried. That's just marital status. Unsafe people can be married or unmarried. There's no virtue in being married or unmarried. It is just the situation you find yourself in. Single men can pastor a church. They can Now, I think there are some things that they have to be careful about, and I think there are things they need to be warned about, but single men can pastor a church. Paul just naturally assumes that from the leadership, the mature men of the church, these men for the most part are going to be married. It's just a normal assumption. And we would do the same thing today. Most pastors are married. But he is not, in my opinion, excluding men who are single from being an elder in the church. If he's mature, he meets the qualifications. Fine. These are spiritual qualifications, not marital status situations. There's a second view. That's the first view that people hold to. And you might think that's far out. Nobody would hold to that. But I told you, I have a friend who held to that. He has come out of that and now does not hold to that. But it took quite a while for him to see some things. Another view, and you're going to think this is far out, but I don't know personally someone who holds this, but I listened to a cassette tape of a man, a very well-known seminary professor who holds this view. And this view says this, an elder must not remarry if his first wife dies. According to this view, if an elder's wife dies, he cannot remarry or he's disqualified. The thinking being, he's not the husband of one wife, he's the husband of two wives now. I'd say, no one would ever hold that. Yes, people hold this. I understand it's a popular view in Europe. Why? I don't know. But you might think, as I did, why would anyone hold to this? This is ridiculous if you follow through on some of this thought process. Why would anyone hold to this? Well, as far as I can tell, the reason that goes behind this is that they say it is a sign of weakness. A man who has to marry again shows that he is weak. They also say a double family would be a hindrance to the work of the ministry. In other words, he'd be hampered by domestic hassles that would be just too much for him. I think there are some problems with this view. I don't know if I'm stepping on toes, but I'm going to tell you what the problems are with this view. The first problem is this. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 does not say an elder must be married only once. I mean, let's have biblical integrity. It doesn't say that. You may think it says that. It doesn't say that. That's why it's important to see what it says. It doesn't say he must be married once, nor does it say an elder cannot remarry. It doesn't say that. What it does say is that he must be a one-woman man. That's the first thing. The second problem is an elder is supposed to have domestic cares. Verse 4 of chapter 3 says he must be one who manages his own household well and keeping his children under control with all dignity. If a man doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? He's got to have domestic cares. If he's married, he's going to. Let's put it that way. And Paul's not concerned about how many children the elder supports. It doesn't say if he gets two families or gets eight kids here, it's really rough on him. No, it just says that no matter how many he has, he manages them well, whether he has eight or whether he has one. That's not the issue. If it was, Paul would say can't have more than four. Can't do that. Be too much for him. And what about this view that it's a sign of weakness to marry a second wife? If it's a sign of weakness to marry a second wife, it's a sign of weakness to marry the first wife, right? I mean, it's just a sign of weakness. That's absurd. That is really absurd. If God wants to graciously provide a help me for this man who's been widowed, does that mean he's no longer qualified to be an elder? Think about that. In fact, the widower who doesn't remarry faces the greatest burden, not the one who remarries. The fourth problem is that other scriptures encourage a widow to remarry. That's the greatest problem is that it contradicts other scriptures. I don't know if you know that, but the Bible encourages that. When you look over at First Timothy chapter 5. This is very, very interesting. First Timothy chapter 5 verse 9. We'll deal with this more extensively when we get to it, but for now, it's good to see this. The church was to take care of the widows if no one else could, if she didn't have children or family support. And she was destitute, the church was to take care of her. He says in verse 9, Let a widow be put on the list. Now, apparently, there was a list of widows who they were to take care of, but she had to meet certain qualifications. Only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been, now watch this, the wife of one man. That is the exact term, but reversed for the husband of one wife. It's just the opposite. A one man woman rather than a one woman man. That's the language here. The church is to take over her care. There are certain qualifications. And one qualification is that she has to be a one-man sort of woman.
0: What did you think of today's verse-by-verse program? I'm not sure if interesting is the right word. I think I'll go with two words, thought-provoking. Pastor Steve dealt with a rather sticky wicket, I guess we could say, and he did it well, all the time, coming back to what the Bible had to say. We will continue on in this same vein on our next verse-by-verse broadcast, But perhaps you would like to hear this program again so you can meditate on it. I would encourage you to head over to versebyverseradio.org and sign up for the Verse by Verse podcast. You will then be able to go back and listen to any of the past programs a second time. Or if you are unable to tune in to this broadcast, you can listen when it is convenient. Again, that is versebyverseradio.org. If you have been challenged and blessed by listening to Verse by Verse, please join us next time and encourage a friend to tune in as well.